This message comes from NPR sponsor Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs with flowering shrubs and evergreens that encourage gardeners and would-be gardeners to express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. As Israel's military prepares for a ground war, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza has become increasingly dire. Hello everyone, it's around 4 p.m. here in Gaza. The situation is just getting worse. There are literally no words to describe what's happening. No electricity, no water, no internet. Like almost 90% of Gaza, they don't have connection. We can't even call each other. That's Palestinian journalist Plestia Alakoud. She's been documenting the humanitarian crisis in Gaza on her Instagram. Israel cut off fuel, electricity, and water in retaliation for Hamas's surprise attack last Saturday. Israel says more than 1,400 Israelis were killed and at least 199 were taken hostage. Over the weekend, the Palestinian death toll from Israeli airstrikes surpassed 2,750. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Gaza relies on Israel for roughly one-third of all available drinking water, according to the territory's water authority. On Sunday, Israel's energy minister said it would renew water supplies in parts of southern Gaza after an agreement between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Biden was reached. Hundreds of thousands of Gazans are fleeing south after the Israeli government told residents to evacuate, but the enclave is one of the most densely populated places in the world. About half of Gazans are children under 18, and most have nowhere to go. What comes next for Gazans and the world as an Israeli ground invasion approaches? After the break, we discuss the mounting humanitarian crisis, Israel's plan to demolish Hamas, and the political future of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our panel in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens, trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in the landscape or garden. All it takes is a bit of TLC to transform a dull yard into one that's full of color, texture, and life. Available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Or discover the possibilities at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. 
PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. Let's get into it. We're joined by Joyce Karam. She's senior news editor at Al Monitor. She also writes the China Middle East Briefing newsletter. And with us from Dubai is Greg Karlstrom. He's the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. He's also author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. Thank you both for joining us. Let's start with this question from one of you. No one's talking enough about the water and getting Israel to turn it back on. I wish it was what was on the air all the time on NPR. Please accentuate the stress on Israel to turn the water back on. There are people dying of thirst right now. The humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip is dire. Nearly half of the population is displaced, and necessities like food, water, electricity, fuel, and medicine are dwindling by the day. Joyce, how much of a difference will this renewed water supply from Israel make right now? It would make a big difference. The The problem is we don't know if the water has been actually turned on and if there is enough electricity to actually transfer uh, the water to uh, Gazans in the southern part of the, of the enclave. Uh, Hamas uh, denied today that the water supply uh, is even partially uh, on. Reports we're getting uh, from the ground uh, uh, suggest it's not on yet. We are in day 10 uh, uh, of the fighting. Uh, the siege has been on uh, since day uh, since day eight. Uh, humanitarian aid is stuck on the Rafah uh, crossing and gen negotiations are going on as we speak between Secretary Blinken, the Israeli leadership and uh, the Egyptians. Uh, the people we are speaking to uh, on the ground, uh, they, they really, they say there is no safe place uh, to go. Uh, There is uh, a feeling of uh, desperation. Uh, They're trying to save some of the water for it washing and uh, laundry and some some of it uh, to drink. Uh, the UN access has been limited. They're also evacuating northern Gaza. So this is uh, a very dire situation and we don't have clear answers yet yeah. on how much access are the Gazans uh, got, uh, getting from the partial uh, water supply that Israel said it turned back on. We'll, we'll hear more about the Rafa crossing and negotiations a little later. But Greg, it's been over a week since Hamas's attack on Israel. What do we know now about who was killed, injured, or taken hostage? The death toll on the Israeli side has climbed above 1,400. Uh, most of those were civilians. There are around, I think, 300 or so uh, soldiers and, and members of the security forces who were killed. But the vast majority of the Israeli dead uh, were children, uh, men, women, uh, were civilians, men, women, children. Uh, the number of captives, that's still being tallied up. The figure yesterday was 126. Uh, earlier today, the Israeli government updated that. It says 199 people uh, were taken hostage, but that is not a final number. The government is still trying to confirm exactly who was taken across the border, is still Uh, trying to identify those people and notify those families. And there's a possibility, I think a real possibility, that not everyone uh, who was taken captive is being held by Hamas, that in the chaos on October 7th, uh, people might have been uh, taken hostage by other militant groups or or other people in Gaza. Uh, And so I've heard on on the Palestinian side as well in Gaza that 
uh, Hamas may not have an accurate count of, of just how many Israelis were taken into the territory. And what could a ground incursion mean for how Israel is thinking about the estimated 199 hostages being held? Well, it, you would think under normal circumstances, uh, hostages or captives are a, a very, very salient political issue in Israel. If you think back to 2006, when a single Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, uh, was captured by Hamas and brought into Gaza, there were five years of negotiations to release him. And, and that eventually led to a prisoner swap that saw Israel release more than 1,000 Palestinian prisoners that it was holding in exchange for uh, one Israeli soldier. And there was overwhelming public support for that at the time in Israel. Something like 70-75% of Israelis, if you looked at polls, said they supported the deal, despite the lopsided numbers. But I think the political pressure is a little different this time. You do have, on the one hand, the families of, of people who were taken captive, who uh, have been all over Israeli media over the past 10 days, who have been holding demonstrations, who have been meeting with government officials, uh, and of course, who have a, a tremendous amount of sympathy from the Israeli public. But on the other hand, you have a public that wants to see a large military operation to try and remove Hamas from power in Gaza. That is the stated goal of the Israeli military. Uh, and you've heard even from some uh, Israeli politicians who have said, we will do what we can to try and get these hostages out, but they cannot be the top priority for the Israeli army. And so uh, it's just one of, of several considerations that they're taking into account as they try to, to draw up a plan for this ground offensive. So Israel is preparing for a ground war. We don't know when. Gaza is already under great duress. According to an analysis from the New York Times, more Palestinians have been killed in this recent conflict than during the 50-day war in 2014. Joyce, what does a ground invasion mean for civilians in Gaza? Well, nothing good. Uh, Israel has so far launched three ground invasions uh, in Gaza since Hamas took over in uh, 2007. Uh, this one promises to be uh, bigger and longer uh, on uh, in in the enclave. Uh, the issue we're we're seeing here is uh, they've been saying the ground invasion is imminent. It appears that Israel now is waiting for two things before they go in. One is the case of the hostages that uh, Greg has mentioned. Uh, Hamas is asking for a prisoner uh, swap with uh, Palestinian uh, uh, Palestinian uh, prisoners in, in Israel. Uh, Qatar is mediating, uh, uh, mediating that. Turkey has offered some help. So we're waiting for, uh, for that to see what happens there. The second issue that's important, Jen, is uh, the American citizens that are stuck in, in Gaza. How do you launch a ground invasion when you have uh, 600 Americans uh, in, in, in Gaza that are now at, many of them are at the Rafah crossing and are waiting to get out? Uh, same applies for uh, British uh, nationals in, in, the, uh, in the area. So uh, these things appear to be delaying uh, a ground invasion. Uh, and uh, the, the minute it, it happens, this promises to be very deadly and bigger than all the previous incursions we've seen in, the, uh, in Gaza. Just because Ham Israel has set a goal of destroying Hamas as, as, uh, as an end goal of this operation, and they haven't specified what that means, but that's going to that's gonna be brutal. 
Israel is telling Gazans to evacuate to the south, but the Israeli military is planning to eventually siege the entire strip. Greg, Gazans who are able to flee will flee south, but then then what? There's no answer for that question. Uh, as you say, we've we've seen we don't have an exact number, but uh, we've seen and, and you know we've spoken to people over the past few days who say that they have made that journey and thousands of other people made that journey along with them. Uh, once they get there first, uh, this would effectively double the population of southern Gaza if everyone from the north, which is about 1.1 million people, uh, decided to flee to the south, it would double the population of the south. There are a couple of built-up areas uh, in the south, a couple of, of major cities, but uh, there aren't many vacant houses to put people in. There isn't much shelter for people there. And then there's a fair amount of farmland in southern Gaza. And so you end up with the possibility of people having to, to sleep in fields without a roof over their heads. There are questions about where they're going to find food, where they're going to find water. Uh, most of Gaza's hospitals are in the north, and, and there are no preparations in place for such a large movement of people. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back with more of the conversation in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our discussion. In an interview with 60 Minutes Sunday evening, President Biden was asked whether he supported the reoccupation of Gaza. I think it'd be a big mistake. Look, what happened in Gaza, in my view, is... Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people. How much sway, Joyce, does Biden actually have when it comes to how Israel approaches its response, whether it forges ahead with plans for a ground invasion? What role does the U.S. play? I mean, the U.S. has a uh, big sway. Uh, it's it's the biggest uh, supporter of Israel. Uh, Three billion uh, annually in aid uh, has shown in military aid has shown uh, unconditional support for Israel in uh, in this war. So definitely, uh, Secretary Blinken, his shuttle diplomacy is showing that uh, the Biden administration can pressure. Now to the question whether uh, Israel would uh, reoccupy. By Gaza, as it did uh, from 1967 to 2005, uh, 
that's going to be more a uh, an Israeli uh, decision. Uh, I, I'm not sure if uh, uh, you know the U.S. government or the French government or others can tell uh, Israel, "Oh no, you you can't uh, go back in and take that uh, territory." Uh, they can try, but we've seen from previous uh, you know patterns in history that Israel takes these decisions uh, on its own until negotiations resume and uh, something else uh, is uh, is reached. Right now, it seems the U.S. administration is focused on the humanitarian side and in planning uh, the day after uh, and making sure that Gaza, how it looks now, uh, doesn't look uh, the same way after an invasion, if that goes, uh, if that goes through. Greg, has the U.S. expressed any red line when it comes to its support of Israel in this conflict? I think what the U.S. is trying to do is, in its public messaging, as Joyce said, it's been entirely supportive of Israel. We've heard very supportive statements from the president and secretary of state and uh, just about everyone else in in Washington, with the exception of a a caucus of, of more progressive Democrats. But the private messaging from the U.S. has tried to put some, as you say, red lines around this. There have been discussions uh, with the Israelis about the siege, about uh, certainly easing the, or, or restoring the supply of water in the short term and and these efforts that were mentioned before to try and uh, negotiate the flow of aid into Gaza via Egypt. And then also, as Joyce said, planning for what comes next, trying to talk through strategy with the Israelis about where this is going to go in the future. And so I think that's the idea here from the administration is they recognize that this is not a moment when politically pressure on the Israeli government, public pressure is is going to be received well in Israel, but they're trying to couple their public support with privately uh, pushing them on, on a handful of these questions. I want to turn back to the Rafah crossing. This morning, former Egyptian diplomat Abdurrahman Salah al-Din spoke on NPR's Morning Edition about opening the Rafah border that connects Egypt and Gaza to allow humanitarian aid and people to cross. It would save lives to, to, to keep those 2.3 million Palestinians in their land, moving them is against humanitarian international law. This is a population transfer that would remind us all of what happened in 1948 and 1967, where millions of Palestinians moved across the borders. And when we talked about their right of return, no one is listening. As we're having this conversation, that crossing that connects Gaza and Egypt is still closed. It's expected to open today. And this is currently the only way in or out of Gaza. American citizens trying to flee were stranded at the border over the weekend, despite reportedly receiving emails from the U.S. State Department saying it would be open during a five-hour window on Saturday. But Greg, give us a little more context about why Egypt is reluctant to allow Palestinians to cross over into Egypt for safety. It is reluctant. It would like to allow aid into Gaza, but it needs Israeli agreement to do that. Uh, Both Israel and Egypt have have maintained this uh, blockade on Gaza since 2007. And by mutual agreement, any goods, commercial goods that flow in via Egypt also need to be approved via Israel. The reason for not wanting to let Palestinians out of Gaza into Egypt, there are several reasons for that. One of them is a deeply held fear uh, within the Egyptian army, the Egyptian government, 
that Israel wants to use Egypt, use the Sinai Peninsula as the solution to its Gaza problem. What the Israeli government wants to do uh, is expel the entire population of Gaza into Egypt and, and make it Egypt's problem. And that is something that is really a deeply held belief within the Egyptian army in particular. And, and from time to time, it doesn't help that you have right-wing commentators and right-wing politicians in Israel who go on television and say exactly that. So there is a concern that this would not be a, a temporary displacement to flee fighting. There's a concern that it would be a permanent displacement. It's a mix of those two things. It's a short-term security concern, but it's also a longer-term concern that these perhaps uh, up to two million people who might flee Gaza are not going to be able to go back. So, Joyce, what does that context mean for the likelihood of a creation of a humanitarian corridor for aid and supplies, a corridor that, as we're hearing, is needed rather desperately? Uh, it seems the negotiations are complicated. Uh, as Greg mentioned, this is a uh, there's very toxic narrative around uh, this issue in the Arab world. Uh, looking at 1948, 1967, uh, the displacement of the Palestinians and the fact that the mass flow of refugees went into countries like Egypt, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Syria, and were not allowed back. So there is a fear when the Egyptian official talks about transfer that uh, Sinai would be a second uh, home for the Palestinians. What we, uh, what we are reading uh, and seeing uh, today, you know, and uh, uh, there was a good piece in The Economist and uh, The Wall Street Journal, uh, that what's being discussed is a small safe zone in, uh, in Sinai. In return, Egypt would get some uh, uh, financial aid. They have a big debt relief. And then the Gulf countries, the Arab countries, who really don't take refugees would uh, rather pitch in in, uh, in helping Egypt uh, financially. The Wall Street Journal said they're looking at um, the Egyptians could be willing to bring in 100,000 Gazans into uh, their territory. That's still a very small number, given uh, how many are already displaced, one million. Uh, so uh, we're, we're monitoring the negotiations and what Secretary Blinken would be able to uh, bring out of his talks in Israel and, uh, and Egypt. And just for clarity, Joyce, is in the discussions right now, is this being imagined as a temporary, a temporary move or would this be permanent? Yeah, well, permanent I mean, it's... They say temporary, uh, but I mean, the history of this region, it's the, when the refugees gets, uh, get displaced, it becomes uh, more permanent. I mean, the, whether it's, you know, from the Syrian war, uh, 4 million in Turkey, whether the, the refugees in Lebanon, it's, uh, yeah, nothing is temporary in that region. So it's, uh, it's, uh, th that's the question, and that's driving uh, Egyptian, uh, Egyptian fears. We spoke about the hostages earlier. Joyce, we got questions from listeners about what would happen if Israeli hostages are released. What has the Israeli government said it would do if Hamas returns the people they are holding hostage? Uh, the release of the uh, hostages may allow uh, some humanitarian aid or uh, uh, lessen the siege on, uh, on Gaza, but it's a separate track from the military uh, preparation. It seems uh, so far that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is bent on uh, launching a ground operation. Uh, 
separately from the hostages issue that, as we've discussed, is being mediated by uh, Egypt, uh, Qatar, a little bit Turkey uh, over there. Uh, so it would help. It would, it would uh, you know, give some breathing room for other talks if, if we see a prisoner hostages uh, swap, but uh, it's separate from the military uh, preparation and the operation that Israelis have defined uh, would be to go in and eradicate uh, Hamas. Greg, anything to add? No, I, I completely agree with that. I think the calculus in Israel towards Hamas has changed a lot over the past 10 days. There was a belief uh, prior to this attack on October 7th that Hamas was a manageable threat. And so this group that was seen as a manageable threat now to, uh, say, the majority of Israelis seems like an intolerable threat on their border. And so I think regardless of what happens with the hostages, as Joyce said, uh, I think the, the military plans here are going to proceed apace. We're going to head to a quick break here. When we return, we take a look at mis- and disinformation. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Let's get back to the conversation by bringing in another voice. Avi Asher Shapiro is a journalist covering technology and foreign affairs for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Avi, thanks for being here. So let's start with a basic definition. What is disinformation and how is it different from misinformation? Well, there's, you know, there's intentionally misleading information on the internet that's spread by propagandists or, you know, networks of, you know, state-backed uh, actors who are trying to mislead. And there's just people who are confused, right? Or there's unverified reports. And, you know, it, it, during a conflict like this, you see both both kinds of things uh, swirling and being amplified on our feeds, um, you know, you know, especially at a time when a lot of tech companies are pulling back from the very kind of work uh, and investing in the kind of uh, em- employees that are supposed to tamp down on, on, on this kind of information. The discussion about mis- and dis- disinformation online isn't new, but give us a sense of the scale of the problem. How big of an issue has it become in the past 10 days? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to know exactly. Uh, to a certain extent, we're, we're, we're reduced to sort of looking at our feeds and and sort of trying to, to, to wrap our own minds around it. But there are some pretty blatant and, and disturbing examples. I mean, I was just pulling up something that, that went viral yesterday from an account on, on Twitter, X, formerly known as Twitter, that was imitating the Israeli Mossad uh, that had a verified blue check mark next to it, but was not the Israeli Mossad. 
purporting to show uh, is, is Israel uh, an Israeli defense system uh, blocking a rocket in the air, and it was you know an image from a video game, and it had been viewed you know over two million times on the platform, right? So that's the kind of scale uh, you know that, that we're seeing, especially uh, on platforms like uh, X, where you have had um, you know, the basically uh, you know the firing of staffers who were tasked with uh, monitoring this kind of information, with curating reliable sources during conflicts, and uh, the monetization of going viral on the platform at the same time. Uh, so, you know, the result of that is we see accounts like that in imitating, uh, successfully imitating an intelligence agency passing off an image from a video game as an image from a conflict. Well, the discussion about the role and responsibility of social media platforms to root out misinformation, that's not a new discussion either. But when you look at a platform like X, again, formerly Twitter, with blue check marks or sort of the the sign that you're verified being given to anyone who pays for them, that creates an environment where accountability is really difficult. How have the platforms responded over the past few days? I mean, I think it's really important to underline that this is a problem that's been going on for years, and it's a tough one, right? You have um, you know, making sure that information is, is reliable and making sure that you aren't allowing people to use your platform to incite violence uh, or threaten or abuse people. It's, 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 a, it's a very tricky tightrope to walk. And you also want um, platforms to be places that archive and store important historical documents, even if they are disturbing. And so, And it's hard to know in the heat of the moment, especially when you have hundreds of millions of posts a day, uh, and you're deploying algorithmic systems to sort through all this. So if you go back years, we've had this problem. We had platforms taking down important images of potential war crimes in Syria. You have, you know, a- accusations from digital rights groups before, you know, this recent uh, takeover of, of Twitter by Musk against other platforms about silencing voices from Palestine or not having adequate content moderators in, in Arabic. And you know, so these, these are issues that have been gone, gone on for years. But I think what we're seeing now is, you know, this conflict is erupting at a particular moment where uh, not only have you seen the big platforms make huge cuts to these teams, you've also seen changes in, in the way that the, you know, t- Twitter in particular works, where they've, uh, you know, introduced algorithmic feeds, where they're injecting people into your feed that you've never, that you might not have chosen to follow. And as you noted, they've allow people to pay for reach um, and append uh, verification uh, checks next to their names, not because they're real or authoritative, but because they decide to pay money. So we've seen basically an acceleration of uh, a problem that's gone on for a long time. And the platforms say they're doing their best. You know, they're saying they're in, in there. The Twitter has said, or X has said that they're taking down posts. They've relied on this program called Community Notes, which is sort of a volunteer run effort to append uh, clarifications to viral posts uh, that might uh, be misleading, but you know there was a report last week from NBC that showed that this volunteer-led program is just totally overrun mm-hmm. at the moment. You know they're not able to keep up with the demand for basically volunteer-led fact-checking because mm-hmm. the, the the you know if you have this run by volunteers, you're, you're just you know you're not going to keep up at a moment like this where you have just a flood of posts uh, about from the ground and also you know others. Yeah. I want to give some context here. At least 14 false claims related to the war garnered 22 million views across X, TikTok, and Instagram within three days of the Hamas attack. That's according to confidential findings shared with Time magazine by NewsGuard. That's an organization that tracks misinformation. Avi, when we place 
this within the broader context of this expressed um, distrust of mainstream media, however you define that. What is it about this conflict that's been particularly susceptible to mis- and disinformation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I'm not sure if this conflict is particularly susceptible. I think that any time you have a violent event unfolding in real time, when you have people streaming it from GoPros, when you have, uh, you know, passions that are quite high, you have uh, motivated actors on the internet who are willing to, uh, you know, reskin or take images from other conflicts and pass them off as what's happening. I think I mean, we've had, we've seen this in Ukraine, we've seen this in Syria, we've seen this, you know, all over the world. I, I think... I think what's new here and that's potentially positive is we've really seen a lot of news outlets and human rights organizations invest in the kinds of verification expertise that you need to be able to get uh, the ground truth in a moment like this. So, I mean, I've been just impressed to see over the last you know week or so how many news organizations have partnered with organizations like uh, uh, Forensic Architecture, you know, uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, these, these, these people are looking in real time, geolocating images, geolocating, doing for meta-analysis, piecing together video and putting out like really quick reports verifying what's going on on the ground. And, and I think that's a really sort of healthy development we've seen. So a healthy, like a, a real- a healthy development, but is it a development that's keeping pace with the spread of mis- and disinformation? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think that I think that what we could hope for is that people would take a breath and recognize that in the middle of a conflict like this, there's going, to, especially when the information about that conflict is being filtered through algorithms, that there's going to be a sort of algorithmic fog of war, and that we should know that there are uh, there are organizations out there that are committed to verifying and authenticating information on the ground, and that we should lift up their voices and look to them because, yes, like a, 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 someone imitating Mossad on Twitter is, is going to get 2 million views. And, and I think that that is just the, art, the way that, unfortunately, our social media platforms are engineered and built at this moment. And so for people listening who are curious about where to start because if they say, well, I, you know, I go to X, I go to Facebook, this is where I get a lot of my information. Any guidance for how to either fact check what you're seeing or perhaps some resources they can turn to? Yeah, I mean, I, unfortunately, I just don't think that anyone should trust any viral videos or viral postings on this, especially, one, you know, I, I don't, I think that people should be aware that if uh, there's a blue check or a gold check next to an account, it doesn't mean that that account has been uh, vetted. I think that people should, and maybe it's a tall order, I'm not sure, but I think that people should, to the extent, if people want to really bone up on this conflict and, and be informed, they should read Human Rights Watch reports, they should read reports coming out of the UN they should they should trust sources from uh, am, you know uh, doctors without borders these kinds of groups uh, the extent that they're featured in the media or put out their own information are the kind of groups that have you know been 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 through this before have have are, are, are trustworthy voices from the ground in conflicts and are not out there to get clicks or inflame you know to inflame either side which unfortunately I think is the motivation of, of far too many posters uh, in the middle of a conflict like this well now if you just give us a gut check here. What are some of the real world consequences of mis- and disinformation spreading largely unchecked? I think it's an erosion of, of, of confidence or an erosion of trust 
in in even being able to find any common ground to talk about these conflicts. I th- I would say I you know I think that thankfully you know many of these you know, viral disinformation uh, incidents, you know, they fade, right? I mean, they're not going to find their way into like the the final analysis of of these conflicts in in the minds of experts, I think. But what does happen is a sense that people just lose grasp on a common narrative or, and, and this is already a conflict when people, you know, just have inflamed disagreements about the basic facts of what's gone on or, and, and, and when you have, you know, people who might uh, not spend their entire day sifting through the internet, but see some sort of viral post that might be untrue. And that begins to base, be the basis for their uh, understanding of what went on. And you, you, it basically pushes people apart and it really makes it much more difficult for people to just agree on what, what happened. And I think that's, that's really, really the, the harm. Greg, we just heard from Avi there about disinformation and misinformation. What, what are the challenges of verifying information during war when you're relying on what any given country's officials are saying? Yeah, it's it's very difficult. And I would say first, uh, this one in particular is difficult because it is all so unprecedented. The scale of the massacre in Israel on October 7th, the scale of the Israeli bombardment that has followed in Gaza, the concerns about this turning into a regional war. I mean, even for journalists who've been covering this for a long time, I feel like we're all grasping in the dark a little bit here to figure out what is going on because this is all so new. And yeah, it certainly doesn't help that when you look online, which is a a source of information for all of us and, and particularly for information coming out of Gaza at the moment, because it is impossible for uh, journalists who are not already there to get in. So you're you're entirely reliant on what people post online, what people tell you over the phone. Uh, and it doesn't help that uh, over the past year, the, the primary source for that information, Twitter, has become uh, an even harder place to use. And, you know, OK, some things it's easy to figure out if this is disinformation. There was uh, something that I saw over the weekend from a verified account Uh, citing a report on Israel's Channel 10, uh, which said that uh, there were mass desertions of Israeli soldiers and uh, low morale within the army. And it was quite a striking claim because Israel hasn't had a Channel 10 since 2019. So that one was quite clearly uh, fake. But some of these videos that are going around, uh, not just videos that are from video games, but videos that are from previous Israel-Gaza wars, videos that are from uh, Syria. I've seen a number of videos from Syria that people have tried to pass off as, as being from Gaza over the past 10 days. Uh, you really have to go through everything and, and try to geolocate things and try to figure out uh, if it's been posted before, look for similar images online. Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult process. A big thanks to our guests for joining us today. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. He's also author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. Also with us, Joyce Karam. Also with us, Joyce Karam. She's senior news editor at El Monitor. She also writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. She also writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. And Avi Asher Shapiro, a journalist covering technology and foreign affairs for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more.